You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Ladies and gentlemen, my name is Rick Kleffel, and with us tonight we have S.G. Scott Brown. He's the author of Breathers, A Zombie's Lament, and Fated. His new book is Lucky Bastard. Thank you for joining me, Scott. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Scott, why don't you start with a reading from your book? Sure. Hold on one second. Let me, let me wet my whistle. I could quote, uh, who does, I can't think of his name, the actor studio, inside the actor studio. No, 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 the the person who hosts it, Uh, James Lipton, I'll quote James Lipton. We start, as always, at the beginning. Chapter one. It's my understanding that naked women don't generally tend to carry knives, but considering all that's happened since I woke up this morning, I wouldn't have been surprised if she'd pulled out a meat cleaver or a chainsaw. Why don't you put that thing away, I say, before I realize that was probably a bad choice of words. From the glint in her eye, I can see she's considering obliging me. So I take a couple of steps back, which is about all of the wiggle room I have, since it's less than three feet before my luck runs out. Where I am is the roof of the Sir Francis Drake Hotel in San Francisco after 10 o'clock on a late August night with an angry naked woman holding me at knife point. Which doesn't completely explain my current predicament. But at least it gives you an idea of what my day's been like. <laughs> and you, you can see what my day's... Yeah, I think we're going to have, uh, have an official lapdog moment That's here. That's fine. <laughs> oh, my God, is this Yes, it is. Yes, there's, there's, a, there's a dog on the roof, too. And so we just have... We have no. We have, this is just atmosphere. This is atmosphere thrown in. Sorry about that. It's okay. Yes, I did. Oh, okay. Oh, no. Oh, Biscuit will be just fine once he gets in my lap. Biscuit's only five months old. He is. Oh. He is. Okay, come on. The dog's going to steal the Yes, yes. I don't even need to be here. I don't even need to be here. Let's just talk about pugs. <laughs> You're welcome to fire that whole shebang off again to get us immersed properly. <clears throat> I'll just do the last paragraph. Where I am is the roof of the Sir Francis Drake Hotel in San Francisco after 10 o'clock on a late August night with an angry naked woman holding me at knife point, which doesn't completely explain my current predicament, but at least it gives you an idea of what my day's been like. A helicopter approaches, the propeller thwup, thwup, thwupping, the lights cutting through the darkness and fog. At first I think it's the cops, until I see the CBS logo painted across the side. Great, I'm making the evening news. This is all I need. Maybe I could have prevented all of this from happening had I paid more attention to my better judgment, or found a four-leaf clover, or eaten another bowl of Lucky Charms. I'm not superstitious, but sometimes it doesn't hurt to take precautions. This is all your fault, she says, holding on to the eight-inch carving knife with both hands. All of it. Your fault. It's at times like this I wish I'd taken some classes in situational diplomacy. Even though I grew up in a somewhat lax home environment, and had the opportunity to embrace a lot of personal freedom at an early age, I still know how to behave in a civilized manner, 
like saying please and thank you, or turning off my phone in a movie theater. But tact and finesse have never been my strong suits. Not that I have an inflammatory personality. I've just never been particularly adept at managing interpersonal relationships. And if any situation called for a little skill and tact in dealing with someone, this is it. But I don't know if this type of scenario calls for humor or reason. Plus, it's a little awkward considering she's naked, so I try to keep my eyes above the horizon. <laughs> Still, I have to do something to let her know I'm not the enemy. So I give her a smile, one that's meant to be reassuring, something to ease the tension and lighten the mood. Not that I'm thrilled to be here. I can think of other things I'd rather be doing, like sleeping or playing naked twister. Instead, I'm on the roof of a hotel trying to defuse a tense situation before anyone else gets hurt. But like any naked woman holding a knife, she completely misreads my intention. <laughs> Do you think this is funny? She says, pointing the knife at me, stabbing at the air. Not in a menacing way, but more like Rachel Ray making a point about how to properly slice eggplant. <laughs> Only this isn't the Food Network, and I'm not a big fan of ratatouille. No, I say, shaking my head. It's not funny at all. A crowd is gathered on Sutter Street, 22 stories below, their faces upturned and indistinct in the hollow glow of the streetlights. But even from this height, I can make out the media circus pitching its tent. News vans, reporters, floodlights, a dozen cameras trained at the top of the hotel. The CBS helicopter circles us, the cameraman hanging out the open door with a video camera, his lens pointed my way. I smile and wave. I feel like I'm in a Hollywood movie, a dark action comedy with a little bit of intrigue and personal drama thrown in for fun. Characters die, illusions are shattered, and things get messy. I just wish I knew how this ended, how things wrapped up, my personal denouement. But I forgot to read my copy of the script, so I just wait and hope that someone gives me a cue. The helicopter circles, the videotape rolls, the people on the street below wait for the scene to play out, and I'm an actor trying to remember my lines. So that's chapter one. Scott, why don't you read a, another part that gives us an idea of just who we're dealing with? Because I think the, the trope at the, at the center of this novel is absolutely unique, and that's a really hard feat to pull off. I mean, you've actually invented something new in this supernatural world. Well, I'll jump ahead, because this, the second chapter is, is mostly narration, too, and um, and it's, it's him sort of explaining things, and so there's not a lot of action in that chapter. It's a fun chapter to read, but I've, I've read it several times, and sometimes you read something and you think, I, I want to read something new. But it, I do have some things that set up that my main character is a luck poacher. He was born with the ability to steal luck, and all he has to do is shake somebody's hand, he poaches their luck, and then that enables him once he... Once he once he processes it out of his system, and the way he processes it out of his system is a little unusual, and, and I'm not going to go into it, um, suffice it to say, it, it can be a little disgusting because it involves bodily fluids. But uh, he processes it out, and it becomes in its pure form, and it's luck, and he sells it on the black market to other people who are looking to buy luck. Now, luck is an expensive commodity, so the rich are the ones who are able to buy luck, and they buy it on the black market. And... And there's multiple grades of good luck. There's high-grade good luck, and high-grade good luck is people who survive accidents and who uh, win the lottery. There's medium-grade good luck, and those people tend to marry the right person, be friends with a celebrity, and win progressive uh, jackpots. 
And then there are those with low-grade good luck, and they're often in the right place at the right time, and they get an occasional hole-in-one. So, yeah, and, and so typically he finds these people through news stories, et cetera, but you can also, like, if someone almost gets hit by a car or, or survives a lightning strike or you see somebody have something that exhibits that they have luck, he'll, he'll use them as a mark and, and he'll poach the luck from them. And the reason you want to get luck out of your system really quick is luck is like a drug. Because if you're not born with it, even if you buy it, it doesn't stay in your system. It's not, it's, once it's been genetically extracted from somebody, it's, it's meant to be in their DNA. So the reason that luck poachers have to get it out of their system so fast once they once they poach it is because they'll become addicted to it and some luck poachers do become addicted and this will explain uh, here you'll get an idea of why it's easy to become addicted to luck when you poach it and, and there are also people who who purchase luck who become luck junkies because they can become addicted to the, the the rush of the luck and what it does for them um, and and I also mentioned in here that, that there are, are numerous people throughout history who have had their luck poached. I don't know if it's in this chapter. No, it's not. But, uh, for instance, Amelia Earhart, Harry Houdini, <coughs> JFK, um, and then more recently, Charlie Sheen, Arnold Schwarzenegger, and Tiger Woods. They all had their <laughs> luck poached. Because luck, <laughs> luck allows you to get away with things while you have it, but then as soon as it's poached, everything comes crashing down. So... So that's, uh, that's one of the things. But I will read this chapter here where he actually poaches luck from somebody who has top-grade soft or high-grade good luck. And I may have to stop at moments while I'm reading to explain something that, that you don't know because this is at page 190. We're parked across the street from Donna Baker's. Alex sits in the front seat and alternately stares at me in the rearview mirror while reading a copy of Vegetarian T Times as I drain the last of my cappuccino and finish off my apple fritter with a smile and a long, drawn-out mmm. Okay, well, Alex, Alex is a vegan douchebag, and, <laughs> and, and he's driving Nick around in the car to poach luck from, from different marks uh, for various reasons. And... What I ended up doing is, I, I don't know why, when I write, I just make it up as I go. And for some reason, I made Alex a vegan douchebag. And I tend to eat vegetarian, and I, but, but I'm not a militant person, so I don't, I don't go off as to all the reasons you should not eat meat or, 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 or you should eat this or should not eat that or you should eat organic, whatever. And so I decided to make Alex that person, and, and Nick is just the opposite. So I'm playing both sides of the fence here. And, and when, you know, my characters don't necessarily espouse what I believe. They espouse different pieces of, of what I may believe. So I take them to extremes. So Alex is a vegan douchebag. And, and the reason that Nick is making such a big deal about his apple fritters, of course, apple, apples or um, donuts are fried in grease and it's with animal fat. And, and so Alex does not like the fact that he's eating this and he's been taunting them. So, uh, so he, he has a drawn out, mmm. Animal killer, says Alex. Douchebag, I say. I climb out of the car and I walk across the street, stopping beneath the shade of an elm tree to collect my thoughts and put on my game face. Poaching luck is a lot like a job interview. If you don't make a good first impression, you're probably not going to get what you came for. Grandpa used to tell me that. Said poaching luck was like any artistic endeavor. The more you practice, the better you got. It was a gift, he said, to be nurtured and not taken for granted. Bad habits bred bad results. Grandpa was always full of useful information. 
Whenever possible, he would coach me on different techniques and approaches and the do's and don'ts of poaching. Always act like you're in charge. Keep your head clear and your eyes open. And never poach under the influence of a woman. Needless to say, my father tried to keep Grandpa away from me and my sister as much as possible, limiting my grandfather's visits after my mother died in the hopes that he could prevent us from following the poacher's path. But even though I only saw my grandfather a few dozen times, and I was only 12 years old when he died, I still remember everything he told me. That doesn't mean I always put it into practice. After a few deep breaths and a quick adjustment of my tie, I walk up to the front door and ring the bell, hoping Donna Baker isn't married and doesn't have any children. Or at least if she does, that she's home alone. The last thing I want is another encounter like the one I just had with Jimmy Saltzman. Plus, parents are more wary and distrustful of strange strangers when their children are present. If her husband answers instead, then I'm going to have to abort, which means I won't be able to come back. That thought almost ruins the good mood I've manufactured for myself. But when Donna answers the door alone, I'm confident this will be an easy score. May I help you? She asks. Good afternoon, I say, extending my right hand. My name is William Kennedy, and I'm setting up a local neighborhood watch program. People tend to trust someone trying to do something for the safety of the neighborhood, more than they do a door-to-door salesman or a special interest representative or a religious solicitor. And William is a name everyone seems to trust. It's non-threatening and has a formality to it that puts people at ease. Likewise, Kennedy has a presidential appeal that still runs runs strong nearly 50 years after the end of Camelot. When you're poaching luck door-to-door, trust is everything. You can't just pick a random name or crusade and expect people to relax when they live in a multi-million dollar home and a stranger knocks on their door. Poaching is an art form, not unlike being on the stage. All you have to do is convince your audience that you are who they want you to be. Nice to meet you, she says. She She still doesn't trust me, not enough to offer her own name. But I'm not looking for that level of acceptance. All I need is her hand, which she gives to me. Easy as pie. Most people don't notice when their luck runs out, so to speak. It leaves without fanfare, like sweat through your pores or air from your lungs. Donna Baker might notice a slight temperature change or a momentary acceleration of her heart rate, but it's nothing the human body doesn't go through multiple times each day. I, on the other hand, feel a surge of adrenaline through my arteries and organs and tendons. My lungs expand and my pulse quickens. I can feel my pores opening and my face flushing and the blood pumping through my veins. I feel all of this happening in the span of just a few seconds. The problem is, it's been more than three years since I poached top grade soft and I'm out of practice. The sensations overwhelm me and I stagger back a step from the front door with Donna Baker's hand still clasped in mine. Hey, let go of me! She yanks her hand away. Before I can offer up an apology or try to calm her down, the front door slams and the deadbolt clicks into place. But I'm too busy enjoying the thrill of scoring top grade soft to worry about what happens next. The initial moments after a successful poaching of top grade soft are intense. Colors turn rich and vibrant and full of texture, like an IMAX movie in 3D or a Van Gogh painting on acid. Half a block away you hear a crow take flight, hear its wings flap, then a car engine comes to life. You smell the oil on the street and the coffee on your breath and the honeysuckle in the yard next door. Your pores release perspiration to cool your skin as the sun heats the air around you. You feel this. You experience every moment every fraction of time. It's as if existence is slowed down and you're moving at twice your normal speed. It doesn't last forever, this heightening of the senses, this immersion in perception, being engulfed by colors and sounds and aromas. But for the moment, I'm a walking paradox. I'm buoyant and grounded, distracted and focused, yielding and invincible. 
Poachers have used a term over the years to refer to what we experience after scoring top grade soft. How we feel, where we go, our personal nirvana, a place we call soft land. I don't know who coined the term, but it's been around since my grandfather, and it's been used in, num in a number of ways to describe the rush of having high grade good luck flowing through your system. Going to soft land, tripping in soft land, riding the soft land express, Though it isn't a good idea to let good luck, especially top-grade soft, stay in your system for more than an hour, the longer you have it, the more you crave the high of something you can't keep, something that doesn't belong to you, something that can become an all-consuming obsession. More than a few poachers have gotten lost on the road to soft land and never found their way back. Good luck is like any drug. You need to know how to control it rather than allowing it to control you. I've never had a problem. I've never allowed myself to get swept up in the high or surrender myself to the ride. But right now, after more than three years of waiting to get a ticket on the Softland Express, I don't want to get off. In spite of the flood of invincibility that accompanies poaching top-grade soft, I know I'm pushing my luck by sticking around. So after one last deep breath of honeysuckle oil and coffee, I turn around and head toward the Lincoln Town Car, feeling the pavement through the soles of my shoes and the blood rushing through my veins. I don't pay attention to the approaching hum of tires on asphalt until it's too late. <laughs> Y'all just have to see. <clears throat> Reading any more past that point, I can go back and read something. I have, I have some sections in here. If we read some more later, where I actually have more dialogue. Any movie intro? Um, well, it's funny because they're they're actually looking to to try to make it into a series. So there's some interest in a television series. There was some interest in it for for a film, but they're remaking a foreign film, a Spanish film that came out in 2002 called Intacto, which is really the idea that I, where I got the idea for, for this. Actually, when I mentioned Softland in here, that's because I wrote a short story in 2004 called Softland. And it has, it takes place in like Modesto or uh, up, uh, up in the, the you know, central, uh, central California up by Stockton. And it's too two brothers and a grandfather who have uh, a luck poaching job went bad and they're trying to get it back together. And so all of the things, all of the sort of mythology I created for, for luck poaching, the majority of it takes place in that short story. And so I wrote that short story in 2004, inspired by the movie Intacto. Intacto was this great Spanish film and it dealt with luck as a commodity. And although there is an individual in there who actually poaches luck, the majority of what they do in that film is they deal with people who possess large amounts of good luck and they engage in games of high stakes, uh, including Russian roulette, running through uh, forests with blindfolds on to see who has the, the best, the, 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 the most good luck. And whoever ends up losing ends up having to give its, his good luck to the person who won. So it's more about that. It, it does involve the idea of luck as a commodity, but I, I liked that idea and it sort of sat in my head for a couple of years until I, I came up with the idea for the short story and wrote the short story in 2004 and then knew that I always wanted to do something more with it and I, I, and I switched that around and, and came up with my new character, Nick Monday, and, and the whole mystery noir uh, aspect and ended up with Lucky Bastard. So that's where, that's where the idea for the good luck came from. People have said to me, and said, oh, I've never heard of that idea before. And I'm like, I don't want to take complete credit for it because... I got the idea from a movie, and they're remaking the movie, 
and so nobody wants to do my book. And, and, and my agent said something like, it's, it's strange because this movie has, I said, well, it's not so strange. It's where I got the idea. Yeah, so. I'm just waiting. Uh, with, 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 well, I, I would hope it would be something like Showtime or AMC or HBO or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Showtime has has some good, has good films, but a AMC has has been putting together a good track record of, of shows. But it's always hurry up and wait with Hollywood. I mean, my my first book was bought by Fox Searchlight, and uh, they optioned it, and they optioned it a second time, and the screenplay was written, and I was packaged with two producers, uh, the writer of Juno and. Uh, and young adult uh, Diablo Cody and the producer of those movies as well as the producer of 500 Days of Summer and a screenwriter who wrote the screenplay for um, Going the Distance which was kind of a raunchy romantic comedy and we were all packaged together screenplay was written everything was all set to go and then they just needed a director but apparently they the producers and the, the studio couldn't agree on directors I'm not quite sure exactly what happened. I don't get a whole lot of information. So um, I, right now it doesn't look like it's going to happen, but you never know. Um, that option actually ends in September. So at that point, we'll see what goes on. But I've had interest in all of my books. I just haven't had anything happen. But it's very difficult to get a film made. There's a lot of moving parts and a lot of people involved, and anything can happen. The person who bought the, the film at the studio could end up moving to a different studio, and all of a sudden you don't have somebody advocating for it. So um, I can only do what I can do is and, and write my books um, and hope that something else happens with it. So. Yes. <laughs> yes. I need to push some some luck. So. You know, one of the things that that uh, section you read uh, made me think about was how well you use the kind of the supernatural trope of the luck poaching to explore something that's real, which is addiction and kind of just like turn it inside out so I can really talk about it and get it out there in a kind of a non-threatening way. So that's, I mean, you know, because uh, who needs another addiction memoir? I, I think James Frey wrote the best fiction that we needed. So, uh, but, so talk about just using that, the way you use the, the trope to kind of turn stuff out and explore different things. Because you do a, a, a number of interesting things with your luck trope in this book. Well, I, I never set out to specifically make social commentary with the idea, um, and, and some of you may know this. Mm -hmm. There are people who plot, and they plot out everything. They know how the book is going to, and they may, you know, move things around a bit as they're going through, but they set up, uh, you know, an outline, and they know how everything is going to go. You write like Nick detects. I, I, yeah. Well, I, I always tell people that I write the same way that Indiana Jones deals with Nazis and historical artifacts. I make it up as I go. Uh, I'm a pantser, and apparently there are plotters and pantsers, and, and I write by the seat of my pants. The story, I discover the story as I'm writing it. So this opening, the opening chapter that I first read to you was actually something that had nothing to do with luck poaching. It was just an, an exercise, and I just... That, that line popped into my head. Uh, it's my understanding that naked women uh, don't generally tend to carry knives. And I just wrote this scene about a guy on the rooftop. And, and a year later, I ended up coming up with something else. And so as I'm writing, I don't plan on things coming. But as I, as I get into this and I, I talk about how luck really needs to get out of your system and I, I create the mythology of the luck, yeah, the, the sort of the addictive properties of it just swarm to, seem to swarm for, swarm for to, sort of, Form of. 
I, I, am, I have I get good grammar. Uh, <laughs> it, it evolves from the storytelling. It evolves from the way things are moving. And it, weighs for, uh, it evolves from the, the inertia that everything is taking. And uh, again, I don't tend to think about it. So, so really, the, some of the things that happen in here, the social commentary, which to me is a little lighter than, than it was in, in either of my other two books, um, even though it wasn't, I didn't feel it was heavy-handed, it was a little bit more subtle and the story took precedence in this, is the idea of addiction as well as the idea of, uh, you know, luck is, is only for those who, who can afford it. And so, you know, the, the, the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. But then it also kind of switches around because, you know, my main character is taking good luck from people. And I like that kind of uh, flip that he hap- happens late in the book that he realizes that he's not good. It's not good luck to meet him. No, no, it's, it's not. Well, it's not good luck to meet him. But he also realizes that there's also there's also the karmic consequences of poaching good luck, because if you're taking, I think I can't remember the exact line. You think I would remember everything I wrote in the book? It says you can't take something for nothing without without eventually paying a price, and that's one of the things in there too. And 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 you'll you'll be able to see. I mean, obviously, since he's poaching all this good luck, you figure, oh well, if you poach good luck, you should nothing bad should ever happen to you. But there are choices you make. And there are other things that are going on. There's also bad luck out there. And so there's good luck and bad luck. And, and, I, and I bring up those, and I don't want to go into them too much by giving away anything specifically that, that happens in here. But, but there's the karmic consequences of poaching the good luck. And there is the bad luck. And there's everything else that goes on. And he also says, just because you have good luck doesn't mean that everything will always go as planned. It's just more likely that things are going to go your way if you have good luck. But again, when you have it and it comes from somebody else, it was extracted from their DNA, and so how it reacts with you might be different. And also, you never know what you're getting when you poach from somebody because luck is water-soluble. So, so it absorbs any, any phobias, any, any fears, any sort of anxieties, any sort of baggage that you might have. So you might, get a, you might poach you know, good luck that's, that's cut with a, a codependent relationship. And so, you know, you, you, there's, there's always little factors involved in that. And so really the only pure kind of luck, and, and this is brought up in here, that you can find is in children. The only pure kind of luck is in children because they haven't had all the baggage that we have and they haven't reached puberty yet and then all of a sudden been cursed with, uh, wow, I'm really horny. Uh, so... <laughs> So they, they don't they don't have to deal with that. But then there is there's a there's a taboo with with poaching luck from children. It's it's kind of like you know it's kind of like child pornography. It's like it's just poachers don't do that. You don't poach from a kid, and so that's that's an, an issue that comes up as well. You know, uh, you have a lot of fun with all the luck permutations that you that you spin in this. And so that came all that was packed into a short story. Because there's a lot of, I, I think one of the the real fun aspects of reading this book is just as as you keep coming up with more and more interesting, like different grades of luck, different ways it can be poached, and your of course your extraction method. As you kind of like work out all the details of what this entails, it, it's a lot of fun. Well, I probably expanded to some extent, but but the the mythology that I created was already there. Uh, I, again, I probably elaborated to it and, and, and made it work in a way that, that, that helped to benefit the story and sort of worked with the, the direction my story was going. But pretty much it was there. And it was about a 20-page 20, a 20 short story, about 5,000 words or so. 
Wow, that's that's a lot. Now, uh, in this story, I think one of the things that's nice, you do a good job with the kind of the detective aspect of it and, and mixing that in with the supernatural. So talk, how much, who are your favorite uh, fictional detectives? Well, it, it, it's, it's funny because I didn't read a lot of, of detective novels and mystery novels. I, I mean, I've read some, some James Elroy, but that's different. That's not the same type of hard-boiled detective type of thing you'll find with Raymond Chandler or Dashiell Hammett. And I hadn't really read any of them until as I was getting ready to read this. And I have a writer's group in San Francisco. And it just so happened that as I was getting ready to write this, and I toyed with the idea of him being a, a detective, two of, the, two of the members of my writer's group had written uh, uh, detective novels that were, one of them was sort of set in the future, and it was uh, kind of comedic, et cetera. And the other one was more straightforward, hard-boiled detective. And so I read those, and I was somewhat influenced by them. And uh, and then I read a couple of books by a, an author named Paul Tremblay for other reasons. And he had written uh, two detective novels called The Little Sleep and No Sleep Till Wonderland. And The Little Sleep is a play on Raymond Chandler's The Big Sleep, uh, which stars um, Philip Marlowe. You know, Philip Marlowe and Sam Spade are probably two of the most iconic uh, detectives that most people, even if you haven't read them, you've probably heard of them. And The Little Sleep stars a narcoleptic detective uh, named Mark Genovich, and it was just kind of a fun way to, 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 to play with that, and I really enjoyed what he did. And then I finally read The Big Sleep and, and The Maltese Falcon. Raymond Chandler is an excellent writer. If you've never read him, even if you're not a big detective fan, The Big Sleep was his first published work, and he was about 49 years old, 50. Mm -hmm. He was around that, that age. And all of his books star Philip Marlowe. And he just has such a great command of the English language, and he his characters are great, and he, he you just feel like you're there in that time period. The dialogue is fantastic. So if, I would recommend The Big Sleep to anyone. I was not as big a fan of The Maltese Falcon. I didn't think that Dashiell Hammett's writing stood up to Raymond Chandler's. I didn't think the dialogue rang as true. It, it was more like overacting in a 1930s movie, the way that people would sort of talk. But it was still a good story. The story was fantastic, the Maltese Falcon, and Sam Spade is a great character. But for my money, Raymond Chandler uh, is, is hands down the, the, the best of the detective novelists that I've read. And, and I recommend The Big Sleep to pretty much everyone. He's quite literary, I think. He has a yeah. very literary feel, but it still has the appeal of the genre act yes. embedded in it. You know, one of the things that I, I love about your books is the... Uh, the way you'll give it, use uh, facts or what seem like facts uh, to kind of move the story along. So are, are all those, you have uh, all these great anecdotes about people who have fallen down elevators and set themselves on fire and fallen out of planes. Are those true? Yes, they are. Uh, and actually, <laughs> actually, <laughs> I, was, I was at a restaurant and it's in, it's in uh, West Portal in San Francisco, and it's a Mexican restaurant. I can't remember the name of the restaurant, but it's, it's the only Mexican restaurant there. There's a very small section of West Portal. And they used to have these placemats or uh, like plastic encased, you know, uh, placemats. And, and this one had some, some odd little Guinness Book of World Records things. And it would talk about this woman whose name was, and, and I, I'm probably butchering the name, Vesna Vulevic who was the Guinness, uh, holds the Guinness record for the, 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 the high, longest, highest survived uh, plane crash without a parachute. And it was, 
There's been some discrepancies as to actually how far it fell, but it's in the Guinness Book of World Records. It's around 32,000 feet. Everybody else on the plane died, and she was pinned into the back by a, by a, uh, a food cart, and she survived. Uh, she had a concussion and a number of broken ribs, but I, I opened up one of my chapters. What is it? Uh, I think it's chapter three. Um, I'll just read the first chapter. And on January 26, 1972, JAT Yugoslav Airlines Flight 367 was en route from Stockholm to Belgrade when it exploded and broke into two pieces, spun out of control, and crashed in what is now the Czech Republic. 27 of the 28 people aboard the plane were killed, most of them on impact. And that's information I got out of doing research for going, just following up on that. And, and so that was true, and then I found some other things in the Guinness Book of World Records. There's a woman, and I think her name is Betty Lou Oliver. She was a, an elevator operator in the uh, Empire State Building. And a plane, like a, 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 like a Cessna, had crashed into it back in, I don't know, 1950, maybe 1940, somewhere around there. And she was severely injured. Well, the paramedics came in there, and they, they wrapped her up, and they put her in into an elevator and it sent the elevator down or something. I don't know if anybody else got on there with her, but uh, the elevator cables, the integrity of the elevator cables were damaged and they snapped and she fell 86 floors and she survived. <laughs> and so she, she holds the record. And so obviously these people were born with good luck. And, and, I, and I, so I used, they, these are, and so I went and I, and I checked that. And, and there's another one about a woman who, uh, who gave, like the, the, gave birth to twins in the backseat of a car. And, and, and there was a car accident and one of them survived. So it's the youngest surviving, the youngest person to ever survive a car accident. Uh, so they're in the Guinness Book of World Records. So I found all these odd little bits and, and you know, had I not eaten at that restaurant, I may not have seen these things. And, and it was just kind of fun to come across those. It was tough to find them on the internet. It was, it was. Sometimes it's very fortuitous. Uh, so yeah, a lot of these things are true. I mean, I, 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 I stay, I stay to them to as as much as possible, and and I like using things like that in my writing. Uh, I'll even research like in breathers. Uh, my main character drinks a lot of wine, and I'm not a big wine drinker, so I I researched very expensive types of wine, and and he's a zombie, and he's learning. He's, his mom is helping him put on makeup, and of course I'm a guy. I don't put on makeup, so I. I read about how to put on makeup and what would go on first with foundation and then the powder and whether or not you would use a, a brush or whether or not you would use a little, little padding and, and what you would use to put it on. So, so I actually do research on how to do little things just enough to make it seem like I know what I'm talking about. And, and it also adds the little bit of realism, I think grounds my stories in reality because I do tend to stick with a supernatural or a fantastic element because that's what I... That's what I cut my teeth on writing. I wrote straight supernatural horror for a dozen years, and then I started writing the dark comedy with a supernatural aspect. Uh, and so, you know, I, 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 I fed on a steady diet of Stephen King and Dean Koontz and Robert McCammon and Peter Straub and F. Paul Wilson, and those were the that's where my influences were. And as a the kid, heroes of the genre. They're yeah. So great. As a kid, as a kid, I loved Saturday Afternoon Monster Matinees and Creature Features with Bob Wilkins and. You know, so I, I loved watching all this stuff, uh, and so that's it's, I can't completely get away with it. I like I like using that supernatural aspect to sort of give social commentary on what on, on the silly things humans do, and uh, and it, it, it makes it fun for me, and I enjoy writing the stories because it's it's fantastic. Yet I like trying to ground it in that sense of reality so that it doesn't seem so quite far fetched. 
Well, you have a really, I think, a good and strong sense of story, given that uh, you make this stuff up as you go, because you know you you have um, your stories have rich characters that we really like, and I think that's grounded in your prose voice. But and you give us a a, a really good plot, so you really just make the plot up as you go. Yes. Yeah, and this this was sp- particularly difficult because this is a very plot-driven book. Um, I I started out on the roof of the Sir Francis Drake Hotel, so I know even though it doesn't specifically end with that, and I and and, and the climax hasn't happened at the beginning of the book, I know that I have to get back into the, onto the roof of that hotel, but I had no idea how to do it, and I didn't know it was going to take place all in one day. Obviously, obviously when it starts out, he says he says it's he, actually it was the opening chapter that that created how I was going to tell the story because he says it gives you some kind of an idea of what my day's been like. So we go back to how I got to the roof of the hotel. So I'm like, okay, I've never done a book that takes place all in one day. So obviously it's going to need to move a little faster. And, and, and I, I still have to incorporate all this mythology about the luck poaching and, and mention that and get that out early enough that you're not completely lost. So there are points in here, uh, and, I, and again, I won't, don't want to give something away, but there is a character that shows up uh, in a bar, uh, actually a nightclub, and when she shows up, I didn't expect her to show up, and I didn't expect her to be who she was. And when she showed up and she said what her name was, I went, well, okay, well, that's interesting. This person is is... I didn't expect this to happen, so now I that changes what I thought was happening in the story. So it, it I always wonder if it sounds a little odd because my, my characters are the ones who really tell the story, and I I know I'm the one writing it, but my plot my plot evolves out of my characters, and there there's a lot of times if you have if you have stories told a certain way, you have a plot, and you have certain things that have to happen, and so. You need a specific character to fulfill a requirement, so characters sometimes will evolve out of plot. Mine's the other way around, so my characters tell the story, and they tell me where it's going to go, and sometimes they they end up doing things I don't expect, and I don't try to tell them that, that that's, I don't say bad, and I don't say bad boy, bad Andy, bad Nick, you know, it's just, it's what they're doing. Um, and But sometimes I, and, and when I try to, force myself in there I can see when it doesn't work like and here I tried to add some social commentary uh, about cell phones and electronics and stuff and it just felt clunky and it felt like it didn't work and I said okay well that's because I'm just trying to insert this in there I just need to let it flow the way it wants to flow so maybe it'll end up in another book but yeah so I, I just need to get out of the way and let my characters tell the story well one of the things too I think that's interesting is you write really dark and macabre books. I mean, Breathers has more brain eating than most novels people will read. Um, <laughs> Faded has a, a, a fair number of grisly deaths, as does this book. Uh, um, so, but I, your books seem cheerful. We really love all your characters. I mean, they're filled with dark, gruesome awfulness, but they're kind of sweet. And how the hell do you do that? I, I don't know. It's <laughs> my sister. Okay. <laughs> I am kind of dark, gruesome awfulness and sweet. So I guess that's it. What, what is it, rats and snails and puppy dog tails? I don't know. You, you like your characters, apparently. I do. I do. Uh, sometimes... And the bad guys. 
Well, yeah. Well, that's to me the thing is I love stories. I love reading stories and I love movies with flawed characters. I mean, everybody does because nobody wants to read a book from somebody who's angelic. And and there's an author I used to love reading back in the 80s and early 90s. And and then I started to read his books and I kept reading his books and and his his bad guys were bad and his good guys were good. And I just thought, you know, I need I need more gray area. I need I need a little bit. I need something else. I need I need my characters to be more complex than that. And so I love stories, and I love main characters and protagonists who are flawed or extremely flawed. Sometimes uh, even antagonist as protagonist. You know, technically, in my first novel, Breathers, even though Andy's a zombie, he's not your typical zombie. If you're if you're if you have a uh, this this idea of what zombies are. He's sentient, and, and, and Breathers really was born from the idea of me thinking, well, what if I came back as a zombie, but instead of, you know, a George Romero Hollywood zombie staggering along, wanting to just eat human brains and having no idea of what I was doing except operating totally on it, I was instead decomposing corpse. Uh, I had no rights, and I needed some serious therapy. What would what would that be like for me? How would society deal with me? What would my parents think? Could I join a bowling league? So, <laughs> these are the questions that I ask myself. And so that's so my main character, but still he's a zombie. And normally zombies are not the good guys. <laughs> zombies are the bad guys. Well, I ended up making my zombies the good guys, and they're the ones that you follow along. And the humans or the breathers are the bad guys. And so, you know, but, but Andy has to deal with some complex things that come along. You know, in the opening chapter, he, well, he's, he, he's, it, it's not giving anything away. The opening chapter, he wakes up and he finds that he's killed his parents and they're in the refrigerator. And so he has to come to terms with the fact that he's, and there's a reason why. I mean, it's, it's not like, it's not like he just did it just for the, the hell of it. There's a reason why he, he killed his parents and you have to decide whether or not that's enough for you to continue to root for him. But, you know, you start out that way, and then you go back to, to how his parents ended up there. And, and um, But, you know, I always say, you know, doesn't everybody want to kill and eat their parents? I mean, come on. <laughs> At some point in your life? Um, but but I love the antagonist as protagonist. I just read The Sisters Brothers by Patrick DeWitt, and that's told from the point of view of one of, uh, one of two brothers who are hired killers during the gold rush. And, you know, you're not usually going to root for a hired killer. But it, it works, and you know, I'm I'm a fan of Breaking Bad, and that is really antagonist as protagonist. I mean, this this guy's you don't even really like him, but somehow the show works, and so I like it when things. I love that type of of, of book, I, you know, and I love that kind of quirky story, uh, whether it's in in books or film, like Being John Malkovich, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, Rushmore, you know, Wes Anderson films, Charlie Kaufman films, David O. Russell films. Uh, the Coen Brothers, you know, uh, Fargo and uh, The Big Lebowski. Those are those are movies and stories that speak to me. I I like the way that they explore the themes that they explore and the characters they explore and the quirkiness that they explore. So, you know, that's that's always sitting there. Well, you know, one thing too, I think that you're really a master of is is hand waving, in terms of as a as a fiction as a literary technique, in terms of making this stuff seem real you know you give us just a kind of enough of a science fictional seems right oh it's a genetic thing inherited in the family DNA and it's enough so that we buy this kind of incredible power and you don't really resort to 
you know, the full-on, oh, it's the supernatural, it's some gift from beyond or something like that. No, no, I, 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 I tend to stay away from that, but that's not necessarily done on purpose. It's just the way, it's just the way it works out. You know, I just, I thought somebody could be born with the ability to, to poach luck rather than having some, some encounter with some supernatural being, and then all of a sudden you're imbued with the ability to, to, to poach luck. So, yeah, it's, it's just the way I, it's just the way the stories come out. I, I don't really have a specific answer or anecdote for for how I, why I go about doing it the way I do it. That just happens at the beginning of the creative process. Probably, That's a and and, you and make? through it too. I don't I don't know it's a decision. I don't know if I make any decisions when I'm writing. Really, you it's know, just I, 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 it's just like I said. It just. What time of day do you write? I'm better in the mornings, and sometimes in the evenings. In the middle of the day, usually I'm not so good. Between twelve and three, you know, I, I want to take a nap. You know, I just, don't we all? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I I discovered that in college. Naps are my favorite meal of the day. I discovered that in college uh, that that I could take a nap between lunch and my you know two or three o'clock class, and and I thought, wow. I know they had, they knew what they were doing in kindergarten, mm. <laughs> you know. <laughs> I, I recharged with a half an hour nap. Yeah, and in Europe, you know. You know, for a book that, as I said, doesn't really dwell in uh, superstition, you do though cover a lot of superstitions about luck, and so you must have had to do some research about you know how people believe about they find luck and what luck is. Oh, sure, sure. Well, that's that's the point, as, as my main character says, that most people believe they can somehow manipulate luck by, by you know, throwing salt over there or knocking three times on wood. And, and I actually researched as to what those, you know, things meant, and, and I don't remember what they all meant. I know throwing the salt over your shoulder is supposed to blind the devil, I think, uh, who's looking over your shoulder. Uh, but even the God bless you and things like that, and and carrying a rabbit's foot, which of course isn't very lucky for the rabbit. And then they have all of these other things that you carry around and, and, and these superstitions of not stepping on a crack or keeping the, the lucky cat to beckon in. And lucky cat plays a, a role in here. And most people have probably seen it in all the Chinese restaurants and in Chinatown. There was actually a Japanese uh, luck totem and it's a, it's a cat with one paw up. And it looks, it looks like it's waving at you, but what it's doing is beckoning luck. And so if the right paw is up, it means one thing. If the left, it means another, and there's, there's dispute on it. But so, yeah, I had to do some research as to what a lot of this stuff meant. And, uh, you know, and, and, and it plays into the idea that, you know, that my main character says nobody can manipulate luck. Only he can. And, of course, when you can manipulate luck and you have the ability to do that, you kind of tend to think of yourself as a little godlike if you have that power. And, you know, he just kind of makes fun of the fact that, humans think that they have the ability to to affect the luck in their lives when really they don't only he does and well he's not the only one there are other luck poachers he obviously comes from a family of luck poachers so so it does it you know there's there's a little bit of of commentary on on human nature and luck and good luck and bad luck and and when things go bad you blame bad luck or good luck instead of just taking responsibility for choices bad choices you might have made so he he mentions that too well, it's nice that um, when you give us that stuff, it's it's entertaining and it drives the narrative. And you have a, a, a means of using that and these other things like the accidents to kind of drive the narrative. It's, it makes it really fun to read. Well, thanks. I, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that I'm able to do that. You know, also, uh, 
you have uh, one of the things that's nice is the way you create this kind of the secret society of, of luck poachers. You know, that there's uh, something uh, that's one of the, you know, uh, standard tropes of the supernatural. That there's something going on under all of our eyes, only we just can't see it. Well, I, I think that's one of the things that drives me to continue to write supernatural stuff. You know, Faded dealt with that, too, is that, you know, there's... You would see a story of something that happened to somebody, whether it was good or bad, and, and you would just think, well, was there something else going on here? I just, I tend to, to think that there's there's something else going on around us that we're, we can't see, some unseen world, unseen energy, forces, whatever, whatever you want to call them, whatever you want to believe in them, but somehow impacting our lives. And so I, I play off that, and, you know, sometimes I'm, I'm, I'm maybe looking for, for, you know, not necessarily looking for my answers as to what answers as to what I believe in, but I'm definitely just sort of exploring some of the possibilities and and having fun with them. Well, why don't you read us uh, another passage? Sure. Do you have another one? Yeah, I'll I'll do one with some dialogue. Uh, let's see, where am I? All right before I read this. Um, the name Nick Monday actually comes from a screenplay I wrote back in 1990 when I lived in L.A. and I was working in Hollywood. And I'd written this airplane naked gun type screenplay with a, the spoof type of thing about a private detective who lives in Chicago. And uh, it, it deals with a, uh, a lot of play on words. And, and so his name was Nick Monday. And, of course, you know, there's the Joe Friday Nick Monday thing. So that's where Nick Monday came from. But there was also another character in there. And her name was Tuesday Night uh, with a K, K-N-I-G-H-T. And so she comes in and they have this whole big wordplay thing. And it's kind of silly and ridiculous and fun. But, you know, nothing ever happened with the screenplay, even though it's, it's got some fun stuff in there that, that I like. And so I decided when I had this character, I would, I would name him Nick Monday. And so I brought Tuesday Night in as well. But, I, but because it's not quite so silly, I didn't, I didn't do the whole wordplay thing. But this is the chapter where Nick Monday meets Tuesday Night. And she's... She's your, your, your femme fatale in the, uh, in the, the mystery. And uh, this is after the, this is chapter four, after the Chinese, uh, two, two members of the Chinese mafia have come to Nick and told him that uh, their boss, Tommy Wong, who is the lord of Chinatown in San Francisco, wants him to come work for him because Tommy is trying to buy up all the luck that he can to make himself impervious to the feds and to the police so that he doesn't get caught and doing anything, and he wants to have a, a luck poacher on the payroll rather than going out and doing it himself. And Nick has refused to, to do this. But he's also concerned because as a detective, people aren't supposed to know that he has this other job where he's a luck poacher. So he's concerned that somebody's actually come in and sought his services that didn't have to do with detecting but had to do with his actual ability to steal luck. So this is the chapter after the, uh, the two thugs from the Chinese Mafia have left. The last thing I want is to see the Chinese Mafia welcome wagon again. Not that I'm worried they'll actually shoot me, but I'm guessing the next time I run into them it might not be so pleasant. So much for my boring life as a private investigator. It's moments like this that make you appreciate you don't have anything tying you down, and you can just pack up and go at a moment's notice. Even though we're able to settle down more than we used to, the nature of luck poaching still requires a nomadic lifestyle. After all, you can't steal from your neighbors and expect to develop a real sense of community. 
That's why most poachers rent instead of owned, own, and why we embrace a solitary existence. When everyone you meet is just potential income, making friends becomes a problem. While luck poachers don't generally form long-lasting relationships, we do marry and reproduce with non-poachers. Otherwise, I wouldn't be here. But people who aren't born with this ability can't understand what makes us tick. They don't know how to deal with our genetic anomaly. It's the ultimate in irreconcilable differences. Even though my mother refused to poach, my father couldn't accept that she passed her abilities along to, her, to, her, to his progeny. My grandmother cut out of my grandfather when my mom was just a little girl, and my great-grandfather abandoned my great-grandmother before Grandpa was even born. You can see the pattern here. When you can't relate to your partner, chances are things won't work out. Poaching luck isn't for the sentimental. You need a strong sense of resolve and the ability to sever any relationship without a second thought. Or better yet, avoid developing relationships altogether. They just get in the way. No one ever mistook me for a hopeless romantic. While Tony Bennett may have left his heart in San Francisco, I'm thinking it might be time for me to find a new place to call home. Three years in one place is like ten in poacher years, especially after a not-so-social call from the Chinese mafia. So I'm considering my options, running through potential territories, Wondering if I could get enough work in Kauai to make setting up shop feasible when my office door opens and in walks a woman who looks like she just stepped off a 1950s Hollywood film set. My office is suddenly the popular place to be. With long dark hair, dark eyes, and ruby red lips, the woman has a face that can make a happily married man forget all about his wife and kids at home. Since I'm not married and I don't have any kids, I'm already two steps ahead. <laughs> Although I can't see all of her curves inside her red circle skirt and her clinging black v-neck wool sweater, I can see enough to make me wonder if she's the type to wear French cut underwear or a thong. And suddenly, Kauai is on the back burner. Can I help you, I say, wishing I'd worn a green t-shirt. I look good in green. She doesn't answer right away, but looks around my office, which isn't much to look at. I'm a bit of a minimalist when it comes to interior decorating. It's just a desk, two chairs, a lamp, a filing cabinet, a small refrigerator, my laptop computer, and me. I'm looking for Nick Monday, she says, saying my name with such disdain that I'm wondering if we've met. It's your lucky day, I say, flashing my most charming smile, because you found him. She gives me a forced smile, letting me know she's not so charmed. I have that kind of effect on women, unless they're corporate coffeehouse baristas. It's complicated. Have a seat, I say, pointing to the chair across from my desk. She walks toward me, not smiling, her shoes clicking loud and hollow on the hardwood floor. When she reaches the chair, she checks to make sure it's clean and sits down, smoothing out her red skirt. I catch a glimpse of one white, creamy thigh as she crosses her legs, and she catches me glimpsing. I look back up and smile. She's not impressed. So how can I help you, Miss Knight, she says. Tuesday night. Really? I say with a smile. Do you find something amusing, Mr. Monday? I lean back in my chair. Have you been following me? She gets this offended look on her face like I just flashed her. I don't know what you're talking about. Sorry, I was only, you know, the whole day of the week thing. Tuesday follows Monday. She just stares at me like I'm an idiot. Never mind, I say. Why don't we start over? I hadn't realized we'd started at all. There's no trace of humor in her voice or on her face. Either she's bluffing or she needs to do more recreational drugs. <laughs> then why don't we start with why you wandered into my office, I say. The majority of my potential cases are messages left on my voicemail. I don't get a lot of walk-ins, especially good-looking ones with ample amounts of cleavage. I didn't wander in, she says. I knew where I was going. And how, may I ask, did you hear about my services? A friend of a friend. And would this friend of a friend have a name? She just looks at me, not saying a word. For a few seconds, I think she's trying to remember, until I realize she has no intention of sharing a name with me. 
I've got a name, a good one. It starts with a B and it rhymes with itch. But that still doesn't mean I'm not interested in seeing what she looks like under her cool, humorless veneer. I am, after all, a man. A woman's personality has nothing to do with whether or not I'd actually sleep with her. So what did this friend of her friend tell you I could do for you, I ask. Help me find something that I've misplaced, she says, blinking once, slow and deliberate. It's almost like she's taking a miniature nap. I notice her eyebrows are lighter than her hair, almost blonde. I wonder if she dyes her hair. And what exactly have you misplaced, I ask. Your virginity, your warmth, your sense of humor. <laughs> she continues to just sit there staring at me as if she read my thoughts and is not amused. Finally, she says, I need you to help me find some luck. I'm not sure if she's asking me to help her find some stolen luck or if she's looking to hire me because of my unique talents. If it's the former, then I'm wondering how I could have forgotten stealing luck from this woman. If it's the latter, I'm thinking it's definitely time for me to pack up and find a new place to live because as of today, it's become pretty obvious my cover is completely blown. She must take my hesitation in answering as incredulity rather than uncertainty because before I can find my voice and stammer out a reply, she says, it's not my luck as if to admit otherwise would be an embarrassment. It's for someone else. Someone else, I say? My father, she says. Someone stole his luck and I would like you to help me get it back. It's always kind of awkward when I'm put in this situation. After all, if her father's luck was stolen, chances are I'm the one responsible. And the last thing I want to do is attempt to retrieve something that either never existed in the first place or is impossible to reclaim. I lean forward. Tuesday, Miss Knight. Did it get frosty in here, or is it just me? Miss Knight, whatever it is that has caused your father to fall on difficult times, I'm sure that luck has nothing. And perception finally dawns on me like the proverbial sunlight on a distant shore. Wait a minute. Are we talking about Gordon Knight? Gordon Knight is the mayor of San Francisco, the latest golden boy of local politics, whose popularity shot up the charts like a happy song with a catchy chorus. Everyone has been singing his praises, with his name being tossed around by political pundits for office ranging from senator to the governor of California. And no, this isn't Gavin Knight. I mean, Gavin Newsom. <laughs> <laughs> or I should say, it was. I poached Gordon, Nutt's Gordon Knight's luck a couple of months ago and sold it on the black market for 15 grand. Since then, he's managed to lose public support for several of his programs and to get caught up in a sex scandal with a local stripper. In the last eight weeks, his popularity has taken more hits than the joint at a reggae concert. People who are in the public eye are the easiest targets for luck poachers. Moguls and movie stars, CEOs and celebrities, politicians and professional athletes. While they're not always easily accessible, they're good for a solid payday. And they've been the target of poachers for decades. My grandfather used to tell me stories about all sorts of famous people who had their luck stolen. Amelia Earhart, Harry Houdini, James Dean, Buddy Holly, John Belushi... Marilyn Monroe, just to name a few. And today's headlines are filled with examples of celebrities melting down, politicians falling from grace, and professional athletes losing the luster of their previously untarnished fame. Charlie Sheen, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Tiger Woods. See, I told you. They didn't implode all on their own, you know. I'd like you to find the person responsible for stealing my father's luck and return the luck to me, says Tuesday. Finding the person isn't the issue, but returning the luck? Miss Knight, as much as I'd like, I'm willing to pay you $100,000. I've suddenly forgotten what I was going to say, and the idea of skipping town just got buried beneath a bunch of zeros. The problem is, even if I could find the person who purchased Gordon Knight's luck, at this point it's most likely been used. And even if it hasn't, the luck's been removed from his DNA. He can't put it back, not permanently. It's been extracted from his genetic structure and is now a commodity, a consumer good. It can't be owned. It can only be borrowed, even by him.
But I don't have to tell that to Tuesday night. If she's willing to pay me a hundred grand to get her father's luck back, the least I can do is try to accommodate her, providing the buyer hasn't used it all up yet, which is possible. You don't have to consume all of the luck at once for it to be effective. Depending on the quality, just half an ounce a day can keep a steady flow of luck in your system until it runs out. And it's healthier, too. Gorging yourself on good luck can wreak havoc on your system. Better to be sensible about your consumption. Kind of like eating a pint of Ben and Jerry's over several nights rather than all in one sitting. So I'm thinking if I'm really lucky, maybe there's a chance I can make this work. I'd also like the identity of the person who did this to my father, says Tuesday. Or maybe not. That might be a problem, I say. Isn't finding people what you do, she asks. Well, not exactly, but I don't want to tell her my last case dealt with serving a summons to a deadbeat dad. It's not as simple as that, I say. I don't care about simple. Tuesday stands up and reaches into her purse and sets an envelope on my desk. I just care about getting my father's luck restored. What's that, I say, indicating the envelope. Consider it a retainer. I open the envelope, which contains in the neighborhood of $10,000, which is a pretty nice neighborhood. I haven't said I'd take the case. Find my father's luck. Tuesday drops a business card on my desk and leans forward, providing me with a purposeful glimpse of her soft, creamy breasts pressing against her sweater, obeying Newton's law of gravity, half spilling out of the neckline. I love gravity. <laughs> and if you find the person responsible, says Tuesday from somewhere above her breasts, I'll make sure to make it worth your while. With that, she stands up, puts on a pair of red sunglasses, then turns around and glides out of my office, taking her breasts with her. Scott Brown reading from Lucky Bastard. You know, Scott, one thing, too, it strikes me that all of your books could have uh, sequels. Um, I, was, I frankly expected one from Breathers. It seemed to almost in some ways leave us halfway there. Uh, it's, you say this might actually become a series for you? Uh, no, I didn't. Oh, <laughs> okay. Refer uh, I, reaffirming my faith in your ability to just spin something absolutely new every time. Yeah, if, again, if I can come up with something that, I mean, I, I have an idea for breathers. Um, I don't know if I would make it work, but it would have to be, it would have to go over material that was, that was, that was new ground. I wouldn't want to just rehash what I'd done in the first book and just bring up some of the same issues because then... That wouldn't be much fun for me, and if it's not fun for me, then it's not fun for anybody who reads it. Uh, the same thing with Faded. I have an idea for Faded, um, which actually was an idea I had for a book before, and I can't tell you what it is if you haven't read the book because it gives away the ending. So I have an idea for, for Faded, and it's possible I might pursue something. Let's just say it would be extremely irreverent. Uh, and, then, and then this one, I haven't really thought. I, I don't think I've had enough time with this one. I don't know... I don't know exactly what happens afterwards, but if I sat and did my other books and, and got them taken care of and wrote those stories, because they're the ones that want to be told right now, then I might see if there's something else here. I have had a number of people say that, that this seems like the beginning of a series or they, they hope to read more about Nick Monday. So, again, I, I'm not, I don't want to write a story just because everybody else wants it. I want to write a story that I would like to read because if I write a story that I think everybody else wants to read, then it's not going to – if it doesn't resonate with me, it's not going to resonate with anybody else. Do you have a new book in the wings? Um, I actually have my, – my agent is negotiating uh, like my contract for my next book and a book after that uh, for a two-book deal. So I've written my next book. I have to do some rewrites on it, and I have a very solid idea and about 30 pages written for uh, for the next book and 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 can I use this as a little plug? Sure. 
Um, I have a short story collection called Shooting Monkeys in a Barrel, which is 10 Twisted Tales, which actually includes Softland, which is where this came from, uh, A Zombie's Lament, where Breathers came from. Those were the ideas that inspired those. And I have two other short stories in there. One is called My Ego is Bigger Than Yours, <laughs> and the other one is called Dr. Lullaby, and they're both actually sneak peeks at the, the next two novels I'm working on. Uh, there's also six other stories in here as well. Most of them are brand new. Um, I have a, uh, a, a, a take on a reality television show. It's, a, it's, a, it's actually written in script format, which is a reality TV show called uh, The Sodom and Gomorrah Shore, which is a play on the, on the Jersey Shore. But it's the seven deadly sins living all together in one house during the end of Sodom and Gomorrah. And so uh, when Lot meets the two strangers at the gates of Sodom, uh, he's meeting uh, sloth and gluttony who are stoned and out looking for donuts. <laughs> and so they're the ones that end up going with him to his house. They're kind of the stars of the script. So it's, it's written as an episode script, and it's the last script because obviously, you know, in that Sodom and Gomorrah get destroyed, so the show is canceled. Uh, but I wanted to mention this is only as an ebook, and, and for those of you who read ebooks and read, e you know, uh, and have e readers, if you're not aware of it, you can purchase ebooks from your local independent bookstores like Capitola Book Cafe, those who have partnered with Google eBooks. So long as you have, you can do it on anything but a Kindle. Now, if you have a Kindle Fire, you can do something called a sideload, and I don't know exactly what that means because I don't have a, a, an e-reader. But if you have a Nook, if you have Android-based systems, if you have an iPad, all you have to do is go to the website of your favorite independent bookstore, and they have a little search button there for Google eBooks usually, and search for any book you want to read, whether it's whether it's a book that is in print, an ebook, or whether it's just an ebook. If you wanted to buy this, that way you can actually support your local independent bookstores rather than giving your money to Amazon and Apple. So I am a big proponent of bookstores. I don't want to see them go away. I don't have an e-reader. I like books. I like the feel of books. I like the history of books. I like the ritual that goes with books. I just like books. So I. I don't want to have to be forced to read ebooks when when I get older. Yellow um, stickies don't work in ebooks. No, yellow stickies don't work in ebooks. <laughs> I, um, I need them religiously. Yeah, to yeah authors yeah. can't. Well, yeah, yeah, but but in any case, uh, I encourage you to spread that information to anybody that you know that owns uh, an e-reader. And like I said, I, I I'm pretty sure that everything I've I've just spit out is is the truth. I've spoken to a number of, of independent bookstores where I've where I've uh, mentioned it, and uh, so so spread the word so that a lot of people don't know that you can actually get uh, get ebooks at your independent bookstore through Google. So anyway, that was my plug for Shooting Monkeys in a Barrel, which has uh, my next book is if you wanted to ask uh, the title is Big Egos, is the title of the book that I'm working on, and it. it it deals with a uh, designer drug about 15 years in the future that you use to inject into you that allows you to become a dead celebrity or fictional character for six to eight hours. It's <laughs> it's 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 taking taking role playing games mm -hmm. to the next level, um, and it really it deals with the whole concept of ego and identity and people wanting thinking they'd be happier being somebody else, and what happens to your identity when you pretend to be somebody else? What happens eventually happens to you, and you know it's the same thing that's going on with with the role playing that you, the different role playing that you've seen throughout, from Dungeons and Dragons to, to actual live action role playing, and now to things like uh, what are the, what are the the big online multiplayer role playing games? Um, 
World, World of Warcraft, Warcraft yeah. and uh, I, I don't know if Halo was there. A lot of these things, and so I don't. I'm not involved in those, but but you, you know, you get people with their avatars and they're pretending to be somebody else, and so it just it sort of explores that whole concept. So that's what Big Egos is, is, is about. So if you want to become Dante, you take daunting. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Want to bet? Pretty. I mean, you seem pretty normal and wholesome. <laughs> <laughs> but are they your alter egos? I, 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 think, I think the best way somebody else put it, somebody else said it, so I'm borrowing somebody else's words, and it's, it's I am none of my, I am, I am in all of my characters, but none of my characters are me. So there's, there's a little bit of me in all of them, and it's, it's just, you know, I had a friend, we, we, I, we did a seminar on, um, Shoot, who's the the shadow self? Was that uh, it wasn't Freud? Jung. Jung. Yeah, it was Frung sh Jung's shadow self. And I had a friend tell me. He said, if you didn't write, I don't think I'd like you, because he says that, you know sometimes you think writers are able to get their shadow self out in in their books. And so, yeah, my my characters do have that sarcasm. And I often say that you know I my books are. Yeah, I think my books are funny. They make me laugh, but I usually say that my, my books are funnier than me um, and, and that I, I wish I could say the things that all my characters do, but I could if I could edit and then go back and then we could have that moment again because I can say exactly the right thing. Everybody's done that all the time. Oh, I wish I would have said that, yes. But, no, no I mean, there's obviously little bits of me. I mean, I, I'm not Alex the vegan douchebag, but there's part of me that, that wants to do what he does. And I'm not the other guy. That, I'm not Nick Monday who wants to taunt Alex the vegan douchebag by, by, by talking about when, when Alex says that, that cows are artificially inseminated on, on these farms. And, and Nick says, well, it kind of makes you want to be a bull on a dairy farm then. You know, so... <laughs> Would I say that in, out in in in, rea in reality? I don't know if if, if the person if if the person if if the person if the person if I knew the person would would accept it well, then I would I would do that. But uh, you know I, I'm I, I so there is a little bit of me in these characters, and and obviously you know as, as Rick had mentioned, and more so in in Breathers and Faded, there's there's definitely a a, a softness to the character or something that's going on, not necessarily love stories or anything, but just them. There's more to them than just being, you know, the, 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 the sarcastic, or whatever. There's, there's a, there's that side to them. And so I think that's me too. You know, I, I think, I think these are all tiny little aspects of me where I'm exploring and taking them to extremes or playing with them. Um, but I, yeah, I, I, I sometimes wish I could be like my characters to an extent and take their persona and go out and be them without, you know, being an ass. But but I thought I think it would be fun to actually go out and see what it would be like to 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 have the reactions of people um, if I did. Yes, it is. Yeah. Yeah, well, when my when I wrote Breathers with the scene with my you know where he kills and eats his parents, my parents were like, "Is there something you want to tell us?" <laughs> <laughs> it's just fiction, Mom. Dad, it's just not real. Have you read the 
Yeah. Yeah. Any other questions? Well, ladies and gentlemen, I hope you'll all pick up a copy of uh, Lucky Bastard by S.G. Brown. And I hope you'll all join me uh, a week from tonight when I'll be talking to Tanya Lorman about this book. It's called When God Talks Back, Understanding the American Evangelical Relationship with God. It's a fascinating work of cultural anthropology and psychological anthropology. She worked with a Christian church, the Vineyard. There's one up in uh, Scotts Valley. And she tried to understand how people can hear the voice of God within their own mind and think that it's a, some other being and understand it as another being. And it's a fascinating work of science. She did an incredible experiment using iPods with different programming in them. It's a great book, and, it's a and she's very interesting to, to hear talk. And I think it's a really interesting look at how people believe, why they believe, and how you can believe in an age of science. I mean, we, we live in an age where, you know, it's tables and chairs, man. Uh, that, that's it. And so, as, just like with Scott's book, I mean, he gets us to believe in things that we don't see, we can't touch, and actually, you know, kind of contradict our everyday reality. But you get suspended in that book, and you can believe it. And she deals with that same kind of experience. So I hope you'll join me next week. And I hope you'll buy many copies of Scott's book and the ebook too. <laughs> Thanks. And You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.